Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 12, Carrie is hit. A well-dressed man in a gray tweed suit walked cautiously to the counter of the telegraph office. He was an older man with a smooth face and thick white hair. Nervously, he rapped on the counter, his head bobbing from side to side as if he were searching for someone. Finally, the clerk came in from the back room. Hurry up, will you, man? Yes, sir, said the beady-eyed clerk as the man handed him a slip of white paper, his hand shaking nervously. Send this to the above address. I'll be waiting, he ordered as he continued to look around. That's signed McPherson. McPherson, McPherson, he shouted loudly. Will you send it, will you? I hadn't got her all day. Yes, I'll send it on the wire at once. If you don't mind, I'll watch you send it, said McPherson as he opened the door and went behind the counter. Whatever the man wishes, said the clerk as he went over to the wire. McPherson alternated glances between the clerk and the windows of the small office. His eyes appeared like darkened slits as if he were in pain and he tapped his fingers on his thigh. Are you done? Are you done? I'm almost finished, said the clerk. There, that'll be... Keep the change, lad, said McPherson as he handed him a bill. In an upright posture and less nervous, McPherson walked from the shop and onto the busy street. About an hour later, George Beetlehouse's private jet landed in Nassau. A limousine brought him to McPherson's hotel. His security men stayed by his side, accompanying him into McPherson's room on the 20th floor. Beetlehouse rapped on the door several times, but no one answered. He twisted the knob, but it was locked. Wayne! Hey, Wayne! He ordered one of his men, go back and get the manager. Minutes later, the manager was on the 20th floor. He opened the door to McPherson's suite, and the men went inside. Oh, Mr. Beetlehouse, said the manager as they stepped inside. Mr. McPherson left this in his box for you, purely confidential. He gave Beetlehouse the box and started to leave. Should I check his messages? Asked the manager as he turned. No, I'll wait for him, said Beetlehouse, looking at the tiny box, which was wrapped in masking tape. Very well, sir. I shall inform the desk that you are here. May I send anything up to the room? Yeah, the biggest bottle of scotch you got, and... George! shouted Wayne as he ran from the bathroom. It's McPherson! He's dead! The men ran into the bathroom and saw the bloody, battered body of McPherson laying limp in the tub. Oh, my God, said Beetlehouse as he got closer. The ugly mess did not seem to disturb him as much as the implications of his death. Now what do we do, Mr. Beetlehouse? Don't touch him, commanded Beetlehouse. They'll have us under suspicion. I'll get in contact with the police right away, said the manager as he rushed to the telephone. Within the hour, the suite was swarming with detectives in the press. Beetlehouse desperately tried to convince them that he had to be in Chicago, but they held him for further questioning. He sat in a corner chair, deeply distressed as he waited the arrival of the chief inspector. It's only two o'clock in Chicago and Carrie had dressed for practice. He was genuinely depressed and he thought almost obsessively about Darby and Phillips as well as Beetlehouse in his meeting with McPherson. The rest of the players were out on the field as he lay on a bench in the locker room. Richie Luger, the manager of the Tropics, entered the locker room and started to look around. Hey, Carrie! Carrie! 
He yelled as he passed a group of lockers and saw Carrie on the bench. Wow, you're looking good, damn it, Carrie. What the hell's the matter with you? Carrie sat up and turned around. Lay off, will you, Richie? I a lot on my mind, all right? Oh, yeah, what? Asked the abrasive Luger. It's none of your business. Just bug off, said Carrie as he got up and walked by Luger. What are you, going bonkers, Carrie? Snapped Luger as he followed him through the locker room. Why are you so pissed off? Carrie did not answer as they passed into a tunnel which led to the field. Oh, by the way, in case you're interested, Benitos isn't pitching tonight. Yeah, it's great, said Carrie as he walked ahead. Grzynski's pitching, said Luger. Fastballs, mumbled Carrie as he ran onto the field, leaving Luger in the tunnel shaking his head. Carrie had trouble hitting the baseball. Perhaps it was the pressure, or maybe he was still tired. He kept popping the ball upward. When that didn't work, he tried to hit the ball to a higher place, but only grounded it. That brought on some harmless needling from some of his friends. Take it to him underhand, Davy. One of them yelled to the first base coach who was pitching batting practice. The aging coach complied with the mighty swing, nicked the top of the ball, sending it trickling down the first baseline and the team howling. Come on, you guys, cut it out. He chided uncharacteristically. He needs a bigger bat, said the second baseman. Carey stepped out of the batter's box and looked down at him. Since he had never blown up this way, they thought he was just kidding and putting on an act for their benefit. Come on, Brian, step back in, he said, it, said Gomes as he looped the ball into the air. However, Carey was not amused. He took the bat and threw it toward the sidelines. Furious, he stomped off the field and headed for the tunnel as the trainer came out of the locker room. Brian, there's a guy here with a telegram, he said as Carey came up to him. Tel telegram from home, asked Carey as he walked into the tunnel. Well, I don't know, Brian, said the trainer. We He's inside now. Okay, thanks, Milt, said Carey as he ran through the tunnel. A young teenage boy was standing with a white envelope and his eyes lit up as Carey came running into the locker room. You have a telegram? Yes, Mr. Carey, he said, handing him the envelope. Thank you, said Carrie as he took the envelope. Let me get you some money, added Carrie as he went toward his locker. Oh, I don't need any money, but I, I could have your autograph. It would mean a lot to me, said the wide-eyed boy. Sure, no problem, said Carrie as the boy handed him a pen. I'll sign it on the envelope, he said as he took out the telegram and put it in his pocket. Now, what's your name? Bruce, he said as he watched Carrie scribbling on the envelope. My pal Bruce, Brian Carrie, how's that? That's great, Mr. Carey, said the boy as Carey handed him the envelope, and he gawked at the superstar's signature. Wait, said Carey as he ran over to his locker. He opened it and reached inside, pulling out a $10 bill. You can't make a living with autographs. $10? Buy yourself some baseballs, kid, smiled Carey. Wow, said the boy as he ran from the locker room, elated with a story he'd remember for the rest of his life. Carey watched the boy leave, and then he sat down on the bench. He took out the telegram and began to read it. Telegram, Western Union, MBX4, PMKVL, Chicago. 5, 10, 5, 78, Chicago, USA, Nassau, 444, Brian Carey, Comiskey Park, Chicago, Illinois, Jacqueline B. Alive, stop, all information, 52nd floor, Cogney Building, London, England, stop, heavily guarded, stop activation code, 
Carrie looked down at a code with maybe 60 or 70 digits. Stop. Keys with Beetle House. Stop. Get all information before acting. Stop. Get all information before acting. McPherson. Carrie read it over and over again. He reached into his locker and stuffed the telegram into the compartment of the rear of his wallet. Then he changed into his street clothes and wondered why McPherson had bothered to send the message to him and considered the possibility that Beetlehouse had sent the telegram to let him know the meeting with McPherson had been successful. Now he was actually looking forward to the game against the White Sox. As Kerry was on his way to the hotel, Darby and Phillips were in central Texas, several hundred yards in back of the Walsh truck. Phillips would increase his speed in the MG every few minutes just to be sure the truck was ahead of him. Then he would drift back on out of sight of the huge truck. They had talked about many things. The Walsh truck was now only a few hundred feet in front of him, rounding a curve, and, and it turned into a gas station. Do you realize we've been going for eight hours? We're going to be zonked out by the time we reach wherever this thing is going. Probably Florida, she said as she twisted the dial on the radio. I wonder how Beetlehouse made out with that guy McPherson, asked Phillips as he took the next exit in order to turn around. And Brian... I don't see how he's going to play baseball tonight. It's just too much pressure on him. The short-haired Mooney arrived at the ballpark about a half an hour before the game. He wore a white shirt, matching pants, and a black tie, as did most of the vendors in the ballpark. Carrying an aluminum chest suspended on a belt around his neck, he could not have been mistaken for anyone else. However, under the popcorn containers and the aluminum chest, he had stuffed a partially assembled gun, and no one knew his true identity. He walked around the wide ramp leading to the upper levels. When he reached the uppermost level, he headed for the door which led to the roof above the stands. Looking down the ramp, he quickly jimmied open the lock and disappeared inside. Wasting no time, he hurried up the stairs, passing the rafters high above the field. Mooney had been selective in, his, in parking his car as he positioned it under the wall of the third base grandstand. The game was less than an hour away as he hunched over and made his way around the back of home plate to the third base side. Slowly and quite routinely, he undid the strap to the aluminum case and set it on the roof. He leaned over the edge, then checked his car 60 feet below. However, it was not a direct jump to the street. When he was done, he would climb down the metal supports in back of the upper level. Then he would leap into the second floor roof, 20 feet below the supports. His car was a mere 15 feet from the second floor roof. He figured he could escape the entire scene in less than 40 seconds. He knelt down on the grill fence overlooking the field, opened the aluminum case, and removed the popcorn boxes. Without delay, he took out the pieces of the gun and a small transistor radio, complete with an earphone. Taking aim on the wrong man would be unforgivable, so he just adjusted the earphone and then listened to the pre-game show while he assembled the gun. He loaded the shells into the chamber and clip. Next, he tested the scope, looking at the faces of the people packed into the park. It worked perfectly and he set the rifle down. Everything was set so all he had to do was wait. He sat quietly, his nerves unmoved as he heard the first two batters ground out. Kerry was the cleanup hitter and there was a possibility of his getting up to bat in the first inning if one of the first two batters got on base. The announcer described the action as the number three batter came up to the plate. Two strikes on Ken Wiseman as Grzynski gets a sign from Burton. Two cuts. Two outs on the top of the first, just on the way here at Comiskey. The right-hander winds and fires, and a ball outside. Kaczynski, a last-minute pitching change for Benito, so has a good fastball. Although he started out a little slow tonight, Bill Mazur. 
Yes, Frank, uh, with a record of 6-15, Krasinski has an ERA of 4.58. All right, uh, Krasinski looks in, and here's the pitch. A little looper in the short right field. Barris is coming in, but this one is dropping in for a hit. Weissman takes the turn at first and gets to bat quickly. Frank, I don't think Kenny was willing to test the arm of Tommy Barris in right field. Now he hurried back to the bag, Bill. So the announcer as the crowd began to cheer for Kerry. The applause you hear is for the man who I'm sure is a prime candidate, along with Clement Horton of the Tigers for MVP, Brian Kerry. Big guy batting at 346 with 117 runs batted in and 42 home runs. Swinging the bat now as he steps to the plate against Mr. Gazinski. Gazinski gets the sign from Burton and goes into the stretch, and here's the pitch. He... He hits Carey. Krasinski has hit Carey. Carey has been hit. He's in the dirt. Oh, my God. That was a very fast pitch. Carey is in very severe pain, rolling in the dirt. And that, he looks still now, Frank. Both benches have cleared. The players are surrounding the plate. Trainer Milt Williams is calling for a stretcher. We can't see Carey from the booth here. I can see Krasinski, Frank. He looks very upset. And now they're holding back Richie Luger, who is raging at Krasinski. Tropics players are now dragging Luger back to the dugout. Mass confusion on the field, and a doctor has just entered the stadium and is on the field now. Here comes the stretcher. We have just been advised that they are administering oxygen to Brian Carey. We will, of course, bring you the first news when we hear on Carey's condition. This game has been completely halted, and the scene is one of sheer confusion. Fans are on the field, and the police are holding them back. Said the announcer, his voice choking. There goes the stretcher as they're bringing Brian Carey off the field. Beagle House was released near 8 o'clock Eastern Time. As Carey lay unconscious in the dirt, the general manager was high above the clouds over eastern Tennessee. It was about 9.30 central time when the pilot began to receive his landing instructions from the airport in Chicago. X-79452, you are cleared for normal landing procedures. One minute, please. X X-79452, is George Beetlehouse on that plane? Affirmative O'Hare. Answered the pilot. X-79452, I have an urgent message for Mr. Beetlehouse. I read you, O'Hare. Message reads, 8.14 Central Daylight Time. Brian Carey was struck in the face by a pitch taken to Westside Hospital. It's unconscious and in guarded condition. Do you read X79452? Affirmative O'Hare, said the pilot as he yelled for Beaglehouse's security guard. Wayne! Wayne! Yeah, Jim, what is it? Asked the guard as he popped his head into the cockpit. You gotta wake Beetlehouse. Brian Carey is lying unconscious in the West Side Hospital. He was struck by a pitch and he's in guarded condition, said the pilot. Oh no, said Wayne as he ran back to the sleeping Beetlehouse. George, George, wake up. We're outside Chicago. Beetlehouse's blue eyes opened and he sat up almost immediately. ETA, Wayne. Fifteen minutes, forty-nine, George. Jim just received a distressing message from Chicago. Beetlehouse stood, and the first thing he thought of was Carey. What is it, Wayne? He asked clearly. Brian Carey, he said as Beetlehouse closed his eyes slowly, and his stomach felt as if it had just been jolted by a live wire. He said, keeping his eyes closed, he was hit by a pitch. He's unconscious at the Westside Hospital. 
Beelhouse opened his eyes and rushed forward to the cockpit. The lights of the city were evident through the clouds. Jim, what is this about Kerry? Just what I told Wayne, sir. Kerry was hit in the face by a pitching. Who the hell was pitching? I don't know that, sir. You want me to call? Yes, yes, call O'Hare, said Beetlehouse as the pilot contacted the same man he had just spoken to, and Beetlehouse grabbed the microphone. This is George Beetlehouse. We read you, Mr. Beetlehouse. Yes, I want more information on what happened at Comiskey tonight. I'll read you the entire summary from the wires. Chicago Sun-Times reports at Miami Oldfield that Brian Carey was seriously injured tonight. Details are sketchy. Then it switches to another story, sir. But who was pitching? Someone just told me, uh, Alvin Grotonsky. Grzynski. Yes, that's correct. I'm sorry, Grzynski. Keep me advised, said Beaglehouse. Jim, is the limousine at the airport? Yes, sir, I told him 9.30. Give me a line on the mobile phone, said Beaglehouse as the pilot handed him the telephone. Hello, operator, operator, give me 778-4325 in Miami. Jake Dorsey speaking. Jake, this is George. Yes, George, are you in the air? Yes, I am. Apparently, I haven't heard about Kerry. He was knocked unconscious by Al Grzynski. I want you to join Gill in Chicago right away. Follow Grzynski. I'm sure he was paid off. I want proof. Right, George. I'll get a hold of Gill. Where can we reach you? West Side Hospital, Chicago. I'm on my way. Good, said Beetlehouse as he handed the telephone back to the pilot. You guys heard nothing up here. Is that clear? Yes, sir. They answered as the plane began circling for a landing. The anxiety bubbled within Beetlehouse as the limousine rushed him to the hospital. By the time he had stormed into the intensive care ward on the sixth floor, a squad of orderlies and doctors blocked his way as he tried to reach Carrie's room. I demand to see him. He's my ball player and my friend. Maybe you don't realize who I am. I'm general manager of the Miami Tropics. Well, I don't care who you are, said the doctor. Would you please lower your voice? No one is to see Carrie. He's unconscious and needs constant medical supervision around the clock. He may even be going into surgery. Ah! Bellow Beetlehouse as he retreated to the outside corridor where Carrie's teammates and coaches had gathered. You know, they won't even let me in there, he shouted to Richie Luger. They won't let anyone in there, George. Has anyone called Joni yet? demanded Beetlehouse as he expected Luger to have done it. What am I, in public relations, George? What the hell have you got a front office for? Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.